This afternoon we've got a guest speaker. He spoke at conference yesterday. And this man is someone who is a gift to the global church and a champion of the local church. For every book that he's written, there's probably 10,000 books that lies behind it in research. Um, he's a brain, but also he's a heart. And in his own ministry, I've been deeply blessed as he's, he's formed me from afar through the books that he's written that I've read that have shaped me to become the man and the pastor and ultimately the disciple of Jesus that I am today. And so can I encourage you, uh, whether through clapping or shouting, just to give Mark Sayers a warm welcome as he comes to share the word with us this afternoon. Thank you. Super humbling. And it's really cool to be here tonight. Um, such a blessing. Ah, oh, hello, people up there as well. Cool. Excellent. I do love churches with two stories. Fantastic. Um, we're going to begin in the scriptures, and uh, we're going to kick it off, not with my words, but God's word. And we're actually going to begin at Acts 2, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, if you've got an app, feel free to flip pages, scroll, whatever you need to do. I will read it out. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Yesterday, I spoke about renewal at conference, and I began with a passage from Genesis 1, where you have this image of the unformed earth, chaos, sitting there in the waters, and hovering over it is the Spirit of God. And we see at that moment, in that image, that this is the moment just before renewal, rebirth. This is a moment pregnant with possibility. And also, many of those images are also in this passage here. We don't have the unformed earth, but we have humans who come from the earth. Adam, Adam of the word, means of the earth. And you have the earth with the spirit which God breathes into Adam and forms human. This is creation. And what we have here is a very similar image, the unformed humanity, the spirit hovering over them, and it births something new. And so yesterday at conference, I spoke about renewal, but what I want to talk about today is when renewal then intersects with human beings and births something new, a new creation. And so the world I want to sort of put before you today, it's an R word, I've got a few our words is rebuilt. We need a renewal, but we also need a rebuilding. And the reason we need this is because of another R word. I'm so proud of these today, my R words. There's a great release happening in culture at this moment. Now, I recently... Uh, have been into the city in Melbourne a number of times, but after we had a really long lockdown, I couldn't come like, downtown for almost two years. And it was really bizarre when we had this five-kilometer thing happening and you didn't go downtown, like you almost wanted to see it was still there. It was this really bizarre thing. 
And the first time we could actually travel downtown, my daughter and I went into the CBD. I'd worked in the CBD, worked uh, in a church downtown, worked in another place writing downtown. And so I wanted to see what it looked like. And I remember going into the center of Melbourne and really being surprised how much it had changed, how many stores were empty, how many people had moved out. The population of the Melbourne CBD actually deteriorated or declined. And many of these sort of inner city suburbs actually saw a decline in population. Now, this is really interesting because the story only I know about Melbourne has been one of continual growth, of continually going to places and seeing new apartment blocks going up, everything being renovated, just this constant sort of uh, power of this engine of growth in our city, of new people coming to the city, migrating, just driving everything. There were certain drives that maybe I drove somewhere a few years ago and you'd take that drive again. Instead of taking 15 minutes, it would take 25 minutes. And it was just at this point in 2018 and 2019 where we were saying to each other, like, this is almost too much. This growth has to stop. It's like just this endless growing thing. And Melbourne was projected to actually overtake Sydney and become Australia's biggest city. But I'd like to say that we have now pushed the problem of growth onto you. And we've sent our excess growth northward, and now it again takes 15 minutes to drive places. <laughs> but it's interesting that many of the places which people left are actually places which, in the city, had people who were living just by themselves, backpackers, international students, people who just moved into the city. Often people talked about culture, how there were places where there was lots of cafes and restaurants and bars and theatres and all this culture happening. But way before any of that, way before Melbourne was seen as cool or whatever or gentrified, that's actually where my family, my grandparents, my, my dad grew up, really close to the city. And the world that which they inhabited was completely different from what exists now. It was a world which wasn't wealthy, it was very working class, it had come through the depression. My grandfather lived in a really small house near the inner city in North Fitzroy and had, I think it was like 11 brothers and sisters, all squashed in this tiny little terrace house which now like one person will live in. And it was an interesting world because I'd hear all these stories and just the connectivity in that community. What was really interesting is my family didn't grow up with faith uh, going back. And, but still, they were connected deeply in this world of relationships. There was all these community groups. There was the local lodge that my grandfather was part of. There was a trade union that he was part of. He worked at the Sun newspaper factory and was connected to all these relationships there. He also was a bus driver, connected into this world of different people who worked on a public transport system. Everyone knew everyone. And there was what I sort of have called the mate's economy. So, for example, the guy who delivered the milk would leave a couple bottles aside. That was for his mates who actually had a bit of butter. It was the guy who delivered the butter, the person who was the fruiterer, put a few apples aside, and they would all fall off the back of the truck every week. But everyone was doing this. It was sort of like a Ned Kelly economy. And they would just leave this stuff for other people. This is what people had learned to do through things like the Depression in order to survive. And this whole world actually was a world of deep social connection and deep ties. Was it perfect? No, there was lots of problems. A number of my relatives in that, that group of 11 uh, brothers and sisters of my grandfather passed away through alcoholic poisoning. But in that world, it was this world which formed you. 
My dad's cousin, which is like my second cousin, started to think when he was a teenager that he was quite tough and started to cause problems sort of down at the shops. Now today we'd, I don't know, write a government report on it or you know, send an article into the news or something complaining about the teenagers causing problems down the shops. But the, the blokes had a chat, the older guys. And basically what they decided to do was to teach him a lesson and form him. So there was a thing which was the like, police boys club and basically down there, the cops would try and take some of the sort of young guys in the community under their, under their uh, arms, under their arms, under their wings, <laughs> in their underarms. Um, and, and, you know, like they would teach them, you know, it was like, there was no fitness first then. There was a stinky gym with cops. That, that's what you had. So basically, my dad's cousin, they take him there and the sergeant is there and they say to the sergeant, all right, teach him how to box but what we're really asking you is to teach him a lesson. He thinks he's tough. So he goes for his first lesson, and basically a local sergeant just like absolutely smashes him. <laughs> and the message there was, we're forming you to keep, you know, pull your head in. Now, this is the world that it was. When you met someone, like so many people's marriages were actually formed because the local LGA, city council, would actually put on a dance at the local town hall and that's how people met people. No internet dating, just your local council putting on a dance for you and you would go there. Now, my dad decided to sort of break free from the strictures of like this sort of world and he decided to rebel and he rebelled from this social formation by buying a duffel coat. A duffel coat is a kind of coat, it's made out of felt, it's got those little ties, it's like what Paddington wears, if, if you know Paddington. And he talked about the fact that literally walk around, this was so out of the norm, that he literally had to just keep looking that someone would fight him for wearing a duffel coat at this time. Now, this was a world which was tight. If you think about it, tight social bounds, there was expectations of what you had to do. And so that's a point in history that we have these times where people live in this moment where there's this deep, tight mix. Now, interestingly, the story of what happens in so much of the world, particularly the Western world, is that around the 1960s, there's sort of this Release, that's my second R word, release. The tight social bounds which have kept people together begin to unwind a bit. Some of that's healthy. You should be able to wear a duffel coat around Preston and not get beaten up. <laughs> you should be, have a thing where everyone in the neighborhood doesn't know your business. You should be able to have something where if you want to get married, there's like not 27 people who've got to have a say in that, uh, in terms of this auntie has to say that, and what does this group think, and the people in that street think this, and so on, uh, and all this matchmaking that would happen in really tight communities. But also there's this point where over the decades, that begins to become more and more of a release. We get to the point in the 1970s where Australia moves from like a middle-rung country to actually a country with increasing wealth. Australia begins to get more and more options. We begin to move into more and more freedom. My dad then, in his generation, experienced the draft of the Vietnam War, where the government asked you to come and actually give up your freedom to fight for your country. And there was just a random ballot, and if your name got picked, you had to go. But as time went on, governments, institutions, asked less and less of us. 
So many of those institutions that filled those communities, from the Country Women's Association to YMCA, all of these different groups, lodges, all of this stuff began to fade, and people began to be released into more and more freedom. And so now, in Australia, like many developed countries around the world, in the major cities, the main household is often a singular person now when you look at the center of our cities. We find ourselves where we have many acquaintances and we can connect with people all across the world, but actually those strong ties are really weak. And then what happens is you come to crisis. Now, so much of the reason that my grandparents lived in this really tight community was because of the Depression and World War I. People went through this thing where people went off to the war and many soldiers didn't come back. People went through this tremendous economic crisis, plus also a Spanish flu pandemic, which killed an incredible amount of people. War, pandemic, global depression, all in a really short time, and people learned to bind together. So when actually crisis comes, people then realize that you actually need those sort of connections as like a capture, a net. And so when the pandemic comes, there's this fascinating reversal that happens in the world. The British journalist, Helen Thompson, made the comment that in a moment, we went from our government saying to us, we're almost asking nothing of you. Do what you want, live your lives, define yourselves as you want, experience freedom, we're here to facilitate your freedom, to create this environment for you to be your best self. And we went from that and overnight it is, you can't go outside of your house. You have to deny all of your wants and desires for a greater goal. And this is a shock. This has happened all throughout history where governments have asked of people greater things to give for a greater cause. But really quickly, we're not used to that. In my state, my state government asked a tremendous amount of us to effectively deny what we wanted to do for two years for a greater goal to save lives. And the world we're heading into with environmental challenges, with energy crisis challenges, with economic challenges, with geopolitical challenges, we're going to move into a world where a lot more is asked of us and we're going to have to deny ourselves a lot more for a bigger goal. But we've not been formed in that way. What we've been formed in is you can have absolute freedom. And the best life is getting more and more freedom and options to create a portfolio of incredible experiences. So this is where it hits the next R word, reality. The ideology and mythology of our day that a flourishing human life is one filled with little ties so you can do what you want to do when you want to do it is nice and good when the world seems wonderful, but actually when crisis comes, that's actually a really difficult place to live. When you need people to depend on in moments of crisis, freedom actually doesn't give you a whole lot and endless options and endless experiences don't mean much when you can't leave your home. Now, this reality is also becoming a reality for the church. That unwinding, as George Packer calls it, of society, he wrote a book in, I think it was 2018, uh, we talked about this unwinding, this unraveling that was happening in American culture, which I think can be applied to our culture. This sense that all those ties of meaning and identity, some good, some bad, but they've begun to unravel, and people now find themselves sort of spinning and looking for a sense of self and a place of belonging and looking forward. We have so many options, 
but we fear that we may have missed something in the midst of that. That reality is also beginning to hit the church. That just as that sense of wanting to belong and denying yourself for a greater goal, the church in the last two years have had to live in the West in that reality. And so this sort of dialogue, no one's really articulated it, but the sort of dialogue that's been going on is almost this negotiation between people coming to the church and the church particularly sort of contemporary churches where they're saying to people like, come, we'll provide coffee, we've got this program, there's fantastic car parking. I'm guessing there's not fantastic car parking here. (laughs) But there's this sense like, here's all this stuff, please come, please keep coming, because in a secular culture, we want to give you more, still follow Jesus, but here's more stuff, more options. And then what happens is, (coughs) you hit a pandemic where all of a sudden, you discover that you can access lots of this stuff online. Where you realize that you can access the best preachers, the best worship, the best books. And you're in this interesting place where throughout a lot of history, you've got two dynamics of the church. You've got the universal church, which I can sit with someone, my denomination is Churches of Christ, but I can sit with someone who's a Pentecostal from Kenya and a Presbyterian from Korea, and we can actually sit and worship together because we're part of the universal church in Christ. Now, it's been interesting because through most history, most people have struggled to ever access in a tangible form the universal church. You may have gone to a cathedral, perhaps on a pilgrimage in the the medieval times and met with Christians from other churches, or perhaps you went to a Billy Graham, you know, like rally in the 1950s. But almost all of your life was in this very grounded, enfleshed, the universal church lived out in the the local context, which is the local church, where you're then discipled and you walk that out in this sort of flesh-on-flesh environment of discipleship and accountability, as it's meant to operate. But the pandemic comes, and I think for the first time in history, that's flipped. Because what you have is access to the entirety of the universal church, the best stuff of the universal church, but it's almost like you don't need the local church. And then when you re-engage in the local church, and I'm seeing this everywhere now, it's like, I'm coming to your church, but I'm really this sort of universal church Christian. So I love what they do at that church, and I'm here and I've got some mates here, but I don't like that bit about it. And could you change your preaching to be like that person over there? And this creates a crisis as this moment where we're seeing a crisis in the world is the exact moment where we actually see, need to see the people of God in fleshing out the gospel in really tangible forms. Just one way, too, that the reality is hitting us. The reality is hitting us in the church because if you look at the generations, what you have is you have people who have been volunteering in the church and living for something greater and sacrificing. And people learned that through this sort of learned history from their great-grandparents and their grandparents, and that was passed down. But it's the sort of formation of our society tells us more to live for ourselves, to more live as individuals, that's disappearing. So what that means is, demographically, we have a really large generation of people called the baby boomers who have brought incredible blessings. I think so much stupid media is written about intergenerational warfare. A lot of it is really clickbait. So we get a lot of denigrating of generations really to sell newspaper print. Now, if you look 
I think God does something just after the war in Britain and America and Australia and New Zealand, where after the, the trauma of the war, lots of people actually came back to church. Billy Graham comes in 1956 and is the biggest sort of like draw card in many of Australia's biggest stadiums. There actually is this moment when a whole generation at that moment decides to live for Christ. There is this institutional follow-up of that. My parents met and my father was discipled into faith through going to Youth for Christ conventions. That's where he meets my mum. My wife's parents are both migrants from Northern Ireland. They're at a Youth for Christ gathering and someone says, oh, here's another person from Belfast. You should meet each other. They fell in love and married. So my entire structure of my family and my kids exist because of a move of God that happened just after the war in the 1950s. As all of these sinews of faith were created in that baby boomer generation, did everyone keep walking with their faith in that generation? No. But you have this energy that's almost like a 150-year journey of energy where God's done these moves and awakenings and revivals, and this energy has been created. And it's almost like a car on a freeway which has been moving, but slowly the foot's been coming off the accelerator. So what's going to happen soon, in the next 15 years, is that generation which has volunteered. I, I have a park near me, beautiful native Australian for, uh, uh, like, like, like plants and, and, and just really beautifully kept. And it's this example of like what the area would have looked like there before, before settlement. And it is kept beautiful because there are these baby boomer volunteers who go there on their Saturday morning and pull up weeds. And during the pandemic, I was walking, and I saw one of them, and she's getting older now, and she's pulling up these weeds, and she almost couldn't pull up the weed. And I remember thinking, no one's going to replace them. Gen Xs are not going to get up on a Saturday morning and pick weeds in the local park. Millennials are not going to get up on Saturday morning and pick weeds in the local park. Gen Z, Gen Alpha, no one's getting up and doing those weeds. And all these things which we just assumed are actually going to fade away. The same thing's going to happen in the church. I think about 75% of people who go to the church in Australia are from that generation. 75% of giving, 75% of volunteering, 75% of doing things like governance and so on. That's going to disappear. And so we're going to have this moment where that release, the reality of that release, means that we face a moment where the church is in crisis. And we face this moment where we actually have to make a decision of what our contribution is going to be in the next season. We need a renewal, we need the Holy Spirit to come, we need fire to actually fall, but also what we need is we need a renewal and we need a rebuild. Because you know what could happen? We could have this moment where the Holy Spirit falls on churches across Australia, but without an accompanying rebuild, without the form that must come with fire, it's just going to be a flash in the pan that we remember and say, remember five years ago when the Holy Spirit fell and our meetings were amazing and it lasted for about 12 months and then it faded away. And remember those people who came to faith and they're not walking with Jesus anymore because there was actually no institutional sinews that moved it forward. I remember those people who got touched by God, but their kids aren't walking with God anymore. And it, it, you know, it, was, it was powerful in that youth tent, but it wasn't so much in the children's ministry, and the thing just fades away. So we actually need this rebuilt. This is like a basic community development process. Nations fail when their institutions fail. And some of our institutions perhaps need to fall over. Some need to be renewed. Some need to be actually built for the first time. When a devastating plague 
hit Germany in 1682, in many parts of the country, two-thirds of the population perished. But only a few years after that, you saw this incredible flourishing, this move of God, where what you saw was, in the wake of this disaster, this remarkable rebuilding, a series of institutions were launched. Schools, orphanages, bookstores, museums, laboratories, hospitals, bakeries, farms, and all these different social enterprises were launched. How were they launched? Well, one man who survived the pandemic was a guy called August Frank. And he remembered something that had happened about a century or two before. When Martin Luther had renewed the church with the principle he called the little church within the church. What he realized that actually God doesn't always work from the top down in a giant PR campaign that someone at the top says and everyone follows it, that actually how God renews his church is often a small group of Christians who are experiencing a renewal in their hearts and that begins to move and just a small group of people get together and they form this group and the, the renewal coalesces into patterns that they do and it starts to take flesh and that then creates a remnant. And remnants are the platforms out of which God launches renewals. And so all those things that come in that parts of Germany were actually started because people started reforming around faith. The same thing happened in the, in the Dark Ages <coughs> when Europe had almost collapsed, it had been re-paganized, and the whole sort of Roman system fell. You had Benedict, who started these monasteries, and this was this sense of order, and around the monasteries, because there was a sense of order and prayer and, and respect for God, people started bakeries and people started breweries. The same thing in Ireland. You see this pattern again and again, where actually life begins to spring around people who are devoted, and God does this new thing. So the big next R word is remnant. Now we often think about the church divided between those outside the church and those in the church. And that's true. But there's a third group we need to think of. Those inside the church who are the remnant. Now if you're thinking, oh, is that the staff? No. Is it the people at the top with positional power? No. It can be. But often the remnant is the people who've given all of their lives for God and stepped in and hunger more of him. Now this seems to be counterintuitive because aren't we going after the big? Isn't the big the thing which impacts culture? Just think about how Jesus follows this renewal remnant pattern. Gerald McDermott, Anglican theologian, says this. We see this pattern in Jesus' ministry. Why didn't he spend much time with the crowds? Why didn't he go after them when they wandered after getting fed or when they turned away in repulsion because of his hard saying? Instead, he spent the vast majority of his time with the remnants, the 12. He went deep with them and trusted that their inner life, which he'd cultivated for three years, would radiate. Their lives would attract others. So this dynamic in the history of God's people we see in Scripture, in the history of the church. We are in a Methodist church. The fact that we're in a Methodist church building is incredible. This begins because a couple, years early, a couple centuries earlier in Oxford, a small group of young adults in their 20s, a bunch of guys decide to get together and be honest about their lives and live their lives in accountability with each other in, in a really hip group called the Holy Club. 
They were detracted by their friends. People, people mocked them and called them the Bible moths. Just devastating, devastating <laughs> insults. You Bible moths. The insult they also gave them were Methodists. And this group who got together and, and talked about stuff that 20-something guys would. They talked about their struggles with pride, with lust. They journaled. They made mistakes, but they kept going as a remnant. And in that group was Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and John Wesley. We're on the other side of the world in this building because of that decision that small group of men made. And this is just one evidence of that. It is across the world. William Wilberforce, who works to eradicate slavery in the British Empire, disciple of George Whitfield. The RSPCA, where people look after animals, is, is one of the things that follows on from that. So many different things. The, the schools movement, I could go on, I won't, I haven't got time. So you see this dynamic throughout the history of the church where small groups of people sold out for Jesus change what is happening in the world. It's a constant dynamic. The remnant becomes a living and breathing alternative vision showcasing the spiritual health and vitality that comes when we cry out and contend for God to move. Remnants are the physical manifestation of renewals. And remnants model the life of Jesus, who vicariously served the whole, giving his life for the whole. And I want to tell you, one of the things I do is I go to countries and pray and go to cities, and people ask me, Mark, what is the idol in this place? What is the idol here? What's the idol in this part of America? Or what about here in Europe or in this particular place? And one of the big things I've wrestled with is what is our idol in Australia? Our idol in Australia is lifestyle. We don't really want power. We're cynical about politics. Honestly, give us an awesome place to be with our mates and do awesome things that's really chill. Beautiful bit of water. <laughs> oh, that smells pretty good. Whatever the version is, our God is lifestyle. But what remnants do is they sacrificially give up their life because they're living out the life of Jesus. And by doing this sacrificial living, it's a prophetic witness, and out of this witness births these incredible new things. Now, I began this sermon with the story of Pentecost. I would love to be there, see it, fire above people, people speaking in tongues and people hearing it. Peter called Satan by Jesus, much worse than a Bible moth. <laughs> then totally transformed this bumbling guy who's getting it all wrong, just like this apostle preaching the gospel. What an incredible moment to see. I think it's no wonder that you know, we almost want our church services to be like Pentecost. But you know, I think about how did that moment get to that point? There is a moment before then, which I think is equally decisive and strategic. At one point, Jesus was being followed by tens of thousands of people. So the question I have is when the Holy Spirit falls, why is it not falling at the Jerusalem Superdome Stadium? to 20,000 people, because they've left. There's an invitation. There's an invitation. Now listen, this invitation comes also to the disciples. They don't get an instant ticket. 
Acts 1, verse 4, chapter before, Jesus is talking to them. This is the resurrected Jesus. It says, on one occasion, while he's eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? There's still part of them wants it on their agenda. They want the big event, the big moment, you know, when it all happens. Then they gathered around him. Oh, sorry. And they said to them, It's not for you to know the times nor dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. What's happening is they're actually being invited into a process. He's not saying just come to this event. There's an event when the Spirit falls, but they're being invited into a process. They first are being invited to be the remnant. And by being the remnant, they get a seat in that room. My last R word for the night, I promise, is room. There's an invitation in the next thing that he wants to do. Who's going to be in the room? Who's going to be sitting in the remnant room, in the upper room? The upper room's not flash. It's probably some dark, small, dingy, stuffy room in Jerusalem. It's not like the grandeur of the temple. It's not as spectacular as a Roman Colosseum. It's just an ordinary room. But they're in there, and they're continually contending and praying. And in the midst of that process of being the remnant, there is the the encounter when the Spirit falls and Pentecost happens. At this moment, as we've been in this great release, which has now just gone almost into a melting away of anything, we need a rebuild. But the rebuild has to be launched by a remnant. So my little subversive thing I'm doing is that I'm just going around, and I'm not called to lead a remnant. I'm not called to gather them online in some giant, you know, after this, if you jump on here, you can become part of the remnant. Rather, I'm here to provoke, to ask, what actually if God is asking you to be part of the remnant? Because I believe that all across the world, this is happening. Small groups getting together, new versions of John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield getting together, grinding it out in their 20s, and then just over time building patterns out of that. I think this congregation here, has the real potential to be one of those little churches in the church. But there's an invitation you've got to say yes to. Let's stand. (coughs) It's not often quiet in cities. So we're just going to, in this moment of quietness, come to attention. We can hear the traffic. Someone's in the city, you can hear the sirens and people walking by. But we're just going to come to attention of the fact that just as in Genesis 1, just as in Acts 2, the Spirit is hovering. The Spirit is sitting above like a low cloud filled with
potential and possibility. Renewal, rebirth, new creation. And so we just come to awareness that the Spirit is here. We think, going back, of the ways in places like this are thin places. We think about when this building was first opened and the people praying for God to move in this city, in this nation. We honor the remnants that have gone before. But at this moment, we pray, come Holy Spirit. We ask for another moment where that happens again. And so we just pray in this moment, come Holy Spirit. We listen to the invitation. We listen to the knocking on the door of the heart. We listen to the invitation that's already been happening over the last few months, last couple of years as life's been disrupted. And we pray that that invitation will begin to coalesce the personal renewal that's been occurring in hearts, maybe even in their hidden places, maybe through sacrifice or obedience that no one's seen. And we just pray that that doesn't just stay a solitary thing. We're created to be social beings. And so we just pray for new connections, new relationships, where the connectivity begins to grow between those whose heart is also being called. And so we just pray, really simply, but also with real boldness. God, in this moment, change the story. Do it again. Birth something new. Build a remnant. Use that remnant as a platform to launch a renewal. Send that renewal into virality to become a revival. Change the story in this nation. God, we look ahead and when we look at the news, we can just see a bunch of crises, big, small, national, regional, personal, international. And we see a world in need. But we know that you are the answer. And so we want to be more like you. We want to embody who you are in the world. So I just really pray for those who have been yearning for many, many years, for those who are feeling drawing now, build a remnant. May what is happening here now go forward in time. May we dare to ask that what you're doing amongst us actually may impact generations to come. Show us your pattern, your plan. As we worship now, let's be that remnant. Let's not just worship as just people sitting on church on Sunday. Let's worship as a remnant.